Well, thank you, Barry, and, and for the time of prayer, but thank you to the worship team. This was our first week without our, without Aaron, and we were kind of, I was a little nervous, but you guys did such a wonderful job for us and led us just in song. And one of my favorite songs, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. Uh, I remember a day of going with a group of college students from Syracuse. I'm going to listen to a little whoop. Some of my friends from Syracuse are visiting. Some alumni are here in town. And uh, we, we actually went to a big camp out this one day for Jesus. And we were singing this song, Holy, 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 open the eyes of my heart, Lord. And it was one of these moments in time in my journey with Jesus when I, I, I think it was just so close, so incredible, so inspirational. The Lord had just kind of spoken to me. I, I just, I long for those days. I long for those times when Jesus feels that close, when we see his presence. Because that, it's not supposed to be just words of a song for us, right? This is what we actually pray and actually are sort of asking God to do in our minds, in our hearts. Today's sermon is entitled, Seeing God. Um, actually experiencing his presence, seeing God. And it kind of led me back to these questions for this new year. We're starting out, you know, that January time. What do you want to see this year? How do you want to experience um, this walk with God that we say we have, that we say we have in Christ Jesus? What do you want to see? What would it be like to actually see God? What would it be like to see God move in this church, that he would see lives change, that we would see things that were like, that's undeniable. That is God. I, I can't claim anything else. It's not somebody else. It's not coincidence. It's not circumstance. But we saw God move. This is what we are asking the Lord to do in our midst. Jesus said a very interesting thing in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. He just says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's stop. Let's ask God to speak right now. Father, we do, along with the words of the song, ask you to open our ears that we can hear you. Open our eyes that we might see you. Or let it be different. Let it be new. Let it be what you intend. We're waiting for you. Speak, Lord, through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we come to moments of asking God to move and asking God to see him, it, it seems something that is familiar to me. Um, many of you have been on this journey with God for a long time. The Lord has led me for many years, and, and I'm very thankful for how he has worked in my life. And as such, I, I feel like I go through some routines. Do you, any of you guys have these sort of cycles that you go through? Right? Barry reminded us last week that it was New Year's, and you're making your New Year's resolutions. Um, I think mine is to not make New Year's resolutions. I think I made that a few years ago, and I've been very consistent with with that. Um, but we go through these cycles of, oh, it's Christmas celebration time, or it's Thanksgiving. Oh, for me, it's the semester starting, right? I've got syllabi to prepare. We've got campus ministries to launch. There, there are things that happen year after year on a regular basis. We kind of get used to them. They kind of get comfortable. Do you guys know about like the great mammal migration in Africa? You know what I'm talking about, right? 
No? Uh, okay, the wildebeest, right? The wildebeest make that 1.7 million of these guys take off from like Tanzania and they move around, right? They, they, they go up around the Serengeti, they go up north into, into somewhere, up into like Kenya, because they have a park up there and then they come back around. But they make this annual migration. This is the time of the year that the mother wildebeests are giving birth to their calves. Happens for about a month and a half right now. And then they kind of make their migration. And it's supposed to be one of the great wonders of the world to see 1.7 million animals go that way and then go that way and then go and make this round annual year after year. Um, some of it's supposed to be pretty exotic. Some of it's supposed to be pretty exciting, especially as they're trying to cross the rivers and the crocodiles are kind of waiting going, hey, it's time to eat. You know, I, I mean, I, that seems to be scary, but the idea of year after year, the same pattern the same order that God has ordained and placed in creation. But I've always sort of wondered, what would it be like to be a wildebeest? Have you thought about that? Like, oh yeah, yeah, <clears throat> time for moving north. Oh yeah, yeah, time for jumping over the river. Yeah, make sure you watch out for the crocodiles. They're there. You know, there there's sort of this sign like, is it just sort of mundane? Is it just sort of old? Is it just sort of old hat? And so as we come to New Year's, we're always like, oh yeah, a new year. What's it going to hold? It's a new semester. I'm going to meet my new students in a week. Oh, what, what's going to happen this year? What's going to happen at church? And then we start going through our routines and, well, it's the same work schedule. It's the same life schedule. It's the same annual routines. And I think even with our walks with God, it can become very much the same. Sort of the ordinary. Sort of the... But God calls us into these patterns. He calls us into this cycle. And so I want to invite you to say, look, I know there's some things that you'll hear today. It's like, yeah, I've been there, done that. But here's what God is calling us to. In the been there, done that, let's see what God wants to say to us this year. How is God going to move in our midst this year? You see, there was a great migration in the Old Testament. I've kind of gone back and kind of been camping out in Exodus a little bit in my own personal devotional reading. And this story, this chapter stuck out to me. Now, what is the great migration in the Old Testament? Well, God took, and one point seven wildebeest, but about that many people, um, God took out of slavery, out of Egypt, as a nomadic band. They ended up spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they reached their promised land, before they reached God's provision. God took them out of slavery, did miracles, wonders, signs, parted the Red Sea, moved them out. And so we often emphasize that great exodus, that Passover experience. We emphasize the conquest uh, in the land of Canaan. But sometimes we forget that right at the very beginning of that migration, that 40-year journey, God stopped the people at Mount Sinai. He entered into a covenant relationship with them, and he did something that was unique he let the people experience his presence in a very powerful way, a way that he told Moses would always sort of be etched in their minds. And so today I want us to look at that passage as we think about encountering God and seeing God and seeing what God would say to us. So let's look together in Exodus chapter 24. We've seen the people, they've moved out, and they're at Mount Sinai, they're before God. Moses has actually already gone up the mountain, met with God, brought the Ten Commandments back to the people, and now God is continuing to speak. And it says in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, 
you and Aaron, Nahab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, you are to worship me at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not, may not come up to him. Verse 3, and when Moses told the people all the Lord's words and the laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Now let's stop right there in the story. There is a truth that we need to understand that is foundational to Christianity. The Old Testament in its entirety, and this story in particular, reveals the fact that there is an, a separation, a separation that is, that is permanent, an eternal separation between God and humanity. There is a distance that's already there. It's built in. You didn't start out really close to God and drift away. No, no, you started out in the, from the very beginning separated from God. There was a distance. Now, I told you that in the story, this story of Exodus, they had been at Mount Sinai for a little bit of time. Moses had already gone up in the mountain and come back down with the Ten Commandments. Moses, get this, had been given specific instructions. He was told to make a boundary around the mountain that the people could approach to a certain distance, and that was it. They were not supposed to charge up and like, wow, God's up there. That sounds awesome. Let's go. I want to see it. No, no, no. Stay at a distance. Even, the, even the, 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 the ones who would become the priests, he said, keep them at a distance. Everybody must stay back. Only Moses could go up. And it's kind of like, well, now, at that time, God had come down on the mountain. There was like fire, and there was this dense cloud of smoke. It said there were peals of thunder. They could see the lightning, and all the people were like, yeah, okay. Sounds good. We'll stay over here. <laughs> Moses, you go on. You check it out. We'll come back. It's okay. We'll stay here. Why? They could see this holiness, this awe, this, this, this wow, that God was there. And, and to approach him, I mean, it just, it had to be a little bit scary. They were like, that sounds like a good plan, God. You go over, you tell, and you'll come back. So when Moses comes back and says, hey, everybody, you're supposed to still worship at a distance. I'm going to go up. They were like, Sounds good. <laughs> we'll worship at a distance. We'll keep it there. This reveals a spiritual truth, right? All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. From the very beginning, our sinfulness has kept us separate from God. We cannot get to him on our own. We could never earn a place in his kingdom. We are not good enough. We will never, we will never like, oh, if I just try to be, work real hard, maybe God will be happy. God is separate from humanity because he is holy, he is perfect, and we're not. Now here's the real kicker though. Sometimes those of us who actually do have a relationship with God, you, you see, because God does make a way. God has made a way in Jesus Christ for people to have that relationship with, restored. We're going to talk about that here in this message in just a moment. But for those of us who have that relationship with God, who have been given forgiveness, who have been given access to God, some of us choose to stay at a distance. You followers of Jesus know what I'm talking about, right? Have you had those times in your life where you're just like, I I I'm good. I I'm comfortable over here. 
my, my life, I, I'll just stand back this direction. I, I know there's people that are pursuing Jesus, and I know, yeah, Psalm 27, seek the Lord. My heart says of you, seek his face. But honestly, I mean, playoff time and the football games are pretty good right now. And there's some other things I want to do with my time. Or I know God is calling me to serve more, to give more, to do something, to, to be. But I'm pretty satisfied with my life over here. Sometimes we actually like the separation. Sometimes we actually choose to stay distant to God. The call of Jesus to his disciples is come follow me. Do you remember the scene with the rich young ruler? When the guy who had so much wealth and he had so much influence, he had so much going for him, and Jesus said, go sell all you have, then come follow me. And the young men went away, went away sad. Sometimes we can go away sad. We just miss what the Lord has for us. Well, that separation is very natural and almost very comfortable. We like, we're like the guy on that mountain. It's like, well, he, God seems way over there. God seems distant. God seems like we could never know. In fact, in the Old Testament, there sort of began to be this idea amongst the people that, you know, we can't get too close to God because if you saw God face to face, if you actually saw him in all his holiness and all his power and all his splendor, it would be too much. You would just probably be disintegrated or be blown away. There's no way you could see God and live. Moses' ancestor, Jacob, uh, the one from whom the 12 tribes came, the one who would be renamed Israel, he wrestled with was it an angel? Was it God? Was it a pre-incarnate form of Jesus? Nobody's really sure, but in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob wrestles with God. And after that night when he seems to wrestle with this angel and, and the morning comes, Jacob calls the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw the face of God and yet my life was spared. Uh, again, in Exodus later, Moses, having gone up to the mountain several times to be with God, asked God, God, could I just see you? Could I just see you? And the Lord responds. He's like, well, actually, uh, he, God responds in Exodus 33. It says 32, but it's really 33. Um, Exodus 33, but God said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Finally, in the, later, uh, we'll see the prophet Isaiah. He has an experience with the Lord. And he says, I saw God high and lifted up. In Isaiah chapter 6, he records this and says, the train of his robe filled the temple. He says, I saw the Lord. And then Isaiah's response in verse 5, woe to me, because I, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord, the King the Lord Almighty. So there's this idea that you, there's just no way you can't get there. Well, in this story that we see in Exodus, we're going to see how God has always been making a way. You on your own can't get to God. You have started out separated, but God has always been making a way for restoration. God has been making a way through what is called a covenant, an agreement, a way of peace. The Old Testament makes this clear that God has always been revealing an eternal covenant between God and humanity. Let's see how it plays out in the story in Exodus 24. Verse 4, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord said. He got up early the next morning and did what? Built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Then he did what? Set up 12 stone pillars. 
Now, you got to remember, Moses is in his 80s. I'm not thinking setting up stone pillars and building an altar would be his exactly idea of a fun day. But that's how he starts out this day. He's building an altar of stone to God. He puts up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent out the young men. I'm thinking it's already been a long day for this 80-year-old. Um, he sends out the young men, the Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings. And they sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Verse 6, then Moses took the blood and he put it in bowls. Bowls from those offerings, those bulls that had been offered and sacrificed. He took the blood, put it in bowls. The other half, he splashed against the altar. Then he came to this book of the covenant, these words that had been written down, this agreement between God and man about how I will be your God and you will be my people. He took the book of the covenant, he read it to the people. They all responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. We're entering into this agreement. We're entering into this covenant. We're going to say yes to God. And Moses took the blood. He then sprinkled it on the people. This blood, he said, is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. What an interesting little scene. There's an altar, there's pillars, there's animals being sacrificed, there's this covenant. What does all of this mean? Well, I think for us, we miss it so often. We read through these stories and kind of gloss over it because we don't see the symbols that God has been putting in place. These symbols that are meant to communicate a message. Let's take a look. The first thing that was there, what was it? It was an altar, an altar, right? What is the altar? Well, they would put these 12 stones, and they were supposed to be uncut, and there were these stones that were built up to be this place of offering the sacrifices, but it was signified something. It was a place to have an encounter with God. This morning I was reading in my personal Bible reading about the altar of incense that they would put in the temple where they would burn incense. And it says, God says, make the altar this way to signify my meeting place with you. An altar is not just decorative. An altar is not just uh, uh, something that is, has a religious religiosity to it, it has this special spiritual significance. This is where I'm going to encounter God. This is where I'm supposed to meet with him. Now, I, 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 I've, you all know that this is my first time to work with a congregation, really, that has a, had a building. I've told everybody that I'm going to the, the Harold Tinsley School of Building Management over here. Um, I'm learning so much about buildings, and this, this month I'm learning about parking easements. Who knew that that was something a, par, a pastor needed to know about? Uh, but we're learning so much about buildings, and I just, you know, there's a lot to these things. There's a lot to keeping them up. Um, uh, and you, as a congregation, this church has really done an excellent job keeping the facilities in such good order. I've always sort of done church wherever we could do it. Sometimes it was a school cafeteria or the gym of cafetoriums, you know, like at the elementary schools. We had that for a while. Um, sometimes we were at Syracuse University, back where my friends may remember some of our worship services that, were, uh, that we had just in the, one of the auditoriums, HBC, right, I think was, was, you might remember, those were some fun days in some of those auditoriums. Uh, we had worship just in a school auditorium and Bible studies um, in the basement of the chapel and these kinds of things. It didn't seem to matter, right? Wherever we could be with God, that was a cool place. And honestly, that's the truth. We can worship God anywhere. 
We can worship God all the time. Jesus says to pray. Pray in your closet where no one sees. It doesn't have to be in some kind of sacred place. But you know, I like the sacred places. I've, I've realized something that there is something significant about them in my soul. They help me remember and see the presence of God. That's why I come on Sunday nights. You're invited. 6 p.m., we have prayer right here. It's kind of quiet. We lift up to the Lord. We pray. I like to be here. I like to dim the lights. I like to just think about the... Because it's a sacred place. It, now, I can pray anywhere. But those that are joining me can attest to the fact that it is special. God had them set up an altar not because he wanted the people to realize this is significant. God is coming here. This is where we're going to make an agreement. This is where we're going to have a covenant. The altar is the place where we're going to be before God. It is significant. You can't pass over it. Second, there were these stone pillars that were set up. Why the stone pillars? Well, in ancient Israel and all over the ancient Near East, Setting up these pillars of stone marked an agreement. They were something that people could look at for a long time. And remember, you see these things. You see these uh, stones set up between Jacob and his father-in-law when they were kind of fighting. And it was kind of like, okay, we're going to set up a stone pillar. You don't cross over here to mess with me. And I'm not going to cross the stone pillar to mess with you. It really is kind of not really a nice stone pillar. But it was something to say, let's remember. Let's remember that we made an agreement right here. This stone is still right here. He put up 12 of these pillars, one for each of the tribes. So they represent all of the people. It wasn't like, well, just Becky's clan. We really like them, but the rest of you are excluded. No, no, no. It's all of people. Well, no, it's just this group over here, the Syracuse alums. We like them. They get a pillar. No, no, it's all of the people. Do you have stone pillars in your life? I'm not talking about like something that's holding up your house or something. I'm talking about memorable moments. These places, these symbols, these things we use to signify this was when God did something significant in me. This was a stone pillar. Some of you know that over Christmas I went home to visit my family. My parents told me they had moved. They had not moved. They had moved some of their belongings, but the closets were still full. There were a lot of things still there. And we found lots of treasures, right? Things that were gifts from old friends, things that were from great-great-grandmother, things that were in the closet. A lot of them I don't have a lot of connection to, but my mom does. But I found one that I'm kind of excited about. I found one that's really interesting. It's not an antique. It's not even made of something that's really going to last a long time. It was a stack of spiral notebooks. You know the ones you get for like 20 for 10 cents at the beginning of school, you know, at at Staples or something, right? You know what I'm talking about, the little 40-page, 100-page little spiral notebooks. But it was stacks of these. And I was like, Mom, what are those? And she's like, oh, those are just my journals. When, when, when God tells me stuff, I just write it down. Wait, what? Journals of her walk with God. I kind of opened up some of them real quick. I mean, just my mom's beautiful cursive handwriting, just as she's recording her daily devotions, when God had said to her year after year after year after year after year. 
Not the same cycle of the wilderness going around and around, and, but encounter after encounter after an encounter of seeing God. That's the invitation. That's why the stone pillars were there. So the people can say, remember this, son? Man, I wasn't there, but your great, 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 great grandmother was when God appeared on that mountain. Your great, 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 great grandfather. God spoke to us there. Do you have the stone pillars, not just for your family, but for your own life, that these things that help you remember what God has done? Well, not only was there an altar, stone pillars, but there was a priest. A priest serving as that mediator between God and man. You see, with all covenants, God was showing in this story, with all of our relationship with God, we needed a mediator. We need a priest. We need someone as a go-between. Paul writes to Timothy. um, He's right in chapter 2. He says, look, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. There is only one. Now, Moses served as the priest at this time. He was a representative, but he was only foreshadowing the one who would ultimately be the one that would be our go-between, the one that would be our reconciler, the one who would repair that relationship. Why? Well, if nobody's told you yet, Jesus was God incarnate. He was all the fullness of deity in bodily form. He represented all that God is and all that humanity is. He alone is that perfect mediator. He is the one that represents both sides. He is the one that is all together. He is the incarnate word of God. He is the one that is our savior, redeemer, mediator, priest, and king. He's the one that is our go-between. Well, Moses brought back a word of covenant, a word requiring obedience, because our agreement, our relationship with God is not just one that is personal, not just one that is relational, but it was one of obedience. So there was the words of the covenant, this words of agreement of how God will be our God and we will be his people. We are entering into that permanent state, those words of covenant. And finally... It was an atoning sacrifice for those sins. Why did they have to slaughter these bulls? Why were they sprinkling blood on on the covenant? That seems like it would just make the paper kind of messy. Why were they sprinkling the blood on the altar? Why were they sprinkling the blood on the people? I'm thinking, no thank you. (laughs) You know, right? From the earliest days in the Old Testament, there's this idea of atonement, this idea that something has to die so that we can live. That somehow because of the sins of, of, of our people, that, that their death is required. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans explains that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. These bulls, these animals that were, were put to death, that his blood which was spread out, was to symbolize Jesus who would later come to be the ultimate sacrifice who would die for our sins, that his blood becomes that cleansing, atoning sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament actually has this chapter, Exodus chapter 24, in mind when he writes these words. He says, when Moses 
had proclaimed every command of the law to the people, he took the blood of the calves together with the water, the scarlet wool, the branches, the hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all of the people. He said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you to keep. And he goes on to explain that that was not really all that there was to come. It was to symbolize Jesus. And he says in verse 15, For this reason now Christ is that mediator of the new covenant. That new agreement between God and man. That new agreement that he has taken away our sins and has given us eternal life. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he, Jesus, has died as a ransom to purchase our life, a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The message is clear here. God knew there was no way for us to restore that relationship with God. So he sent a mediator. He sent Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins that we might have eternal life and have forgiveness, have in the resurrected Jesus a permanent place in the family. Yeah, this story shows that there was internal separation. It didn't last because of this new eternal covenant that he established through Jesus. Well, if you stay with me for just a moment, I have an invitation. It's something that I want you to see in the story that's actually an eternal opportunity. Because this Old Testament story shows us what we've been talking about all along, wanting to see, wanting to experience God. This Old Testament story tells us of this opportunity to encounter God in a new and fresh way on a daily basis. Exodus 24, in verse 9, the next thing that happens, Moses, Aaron, Nahab, Abihu, uh, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. Now, they didn't go the whole way up, but they went up for a little ways. And look at what it says. Verse 10. They saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was this pavement made, some would say, sapphire or lapis lazuli, as bright as the sky. This, this, this pavement of blue, this shimmering sight. What was that like? I don't know. But the elders were close enough that they are seeing the presence of God. Now, we just heard that later God said to Moses, you can't see all of my presence and live. I, and most Bible scholars say they probably didn't see every uh, aspect of God. They didn't see God in all of his fullness, but they saw enough. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, here's this blue. It's like a sea, but it's crystal clear and just smooth. And they saw it and they said, up there, who is that? What's there? They could see enough to know they were experiencing the presence of God, and this God is a personal God. It wasn't that God was just some kind of figment of, well, it's a force that controls the universe. Oh, it's something distant. It's something out there. It's something kind of all around us. No, it's God is a person. God is personal. He's right there, and we are in his midst. The text goes on to say, God did not raise his hand against those leaders of the Israelites. No, they saw God and lived? They saw God and ate and drank. You see, the fellowships that were the atonement sacrifices, those were the ones that were burned up before God and the blood sprinkled on the people. But the fellowship offerings were actually designed to be a meal, a covenant meal, a meal of relationship, of sitting down with your fellow people, uh, the people of God. You know we like to eat together as a church, right? 
Every church kind of does. You're thinking, yeah, is there something today? Because I'm, I'm kind of hungry, actually. I, and no, there's not a lot of food today. We eat with our friends. We eat in community. We eat together as, as family. God had called the people to be his family to be in relationship with him. This personal God was entering into this relationship with him. They ate the fellowship offerings in God's presence. God is relational. You know what that means, right? You know what that implies, right? If today you have been sitting back, if today you've been like, well, I'm kind of comfortable over here. God can be over there. I'll be over here. I'll do my thing. God can do his thing. You go like run the universe and I'll go over here and run my life. It's not okay. God is calling you into fellowship. God is calling you into relationship. God is calling you to walk with him, to talk with him, to long life's narrow way, right? You know the hymn. You know the song. It's in your heart. God is a relational God, and he's called us into that relationship. It goes on in verse 12 to say, God then says again to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. Stay here. I'm going to give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandments that I've written for their instruction. You see, God, our God, is an instructional God. He's not a God that's leaving you to your own devices. He's not a God that's left you to figure out life on your own. He's not a God that's just like, hey, hope you can figure it out. He's a God that guides his word lights our path. He's a God that has called us to be close and to be closely tied to what he designs. Finally, and don't miss this, as we approach God this year, as we're called to be in his presence this year, as we're called to be near God, let's respond to God as he is. Let's respond to God as holy. The story ends with this passage in verse 13. Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, you guys go ahead and wait here for us. We'll come back to you. You've got her. You've got Aaron. If anybody's involved in a conflict, then the dispute, they can go to them. Verse 15, when Moses went up the mountain, a cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Now to the Israelites, verse 17, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire. The Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. There's something there. It takes time. Don't expect God to just show up on your schedule when you've ignored him a lot. It takes time to devote yourself to seek the Lord. There's something there. But what I want you to see is this. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably in reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is holy. Our God is not just our Santa Claus for our check, our wish list. Our God is not just our casual buddy that we can, hey God, you want to play a little pickleball this weekend? Hey, our God is not just 
I'm not even sure how to play pickleball, but, you know, I'm thinking about picking. I don't know. But our God, that's not who God is. Our God is a consuming fire who has called us into relationship with him. Let's approach him as God. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We are the people, the obedient servants. We are the people who God has called to come and enjoy him, to worship him, and to acknowledge that he is God. And we're not. He's in charge. This morning, you're in one of two categories. You're in one of two. One is that you are still in that separated state. You don't know God. You you don't have a relationship with him because you've never accepted the gift of forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and man. You've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. Today, if that's you, how about saying yes? Yes to the provision. Yes to the invitation. Yes to the sacrifice of Jesus that has given you eternal life if you will but accept him. Ask him for that forgiveness. Ask him to come into your life. There's another group of you. You're with me. You're believers. You said yes to Jesus. You said Jesus come into my life. Yes, but perhaps, maybe just in the routine, Maybe in just the cycle, maybe just in the redundancy and in the everyday, that passion has waned. Maybe you just need to say, God, open my eyes, open my ears. I want to listen. I want to see. Lord, reveal yourself to me. Jesus said, whoever seeks will find. If you knock, the door will will be opened. Let's take God at his word. Let's respond to him as he calls. Maybe you need prayer this morning. Maybe you want to make a commitment to follow Jesus this morning. Maybe you want to join this church this morning. If any of those are you, you can come on down. The altar is open. I'll be here. Pastor Barry is here at the front. You come and you respond as God is calling you today. The music team is going to come and lead us in one more song. Let it be a prayer. Seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness.